0: We'll open up this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, the message this morning is going to center around three words, and those three words are found in verse 20. God is able. Verse 20, Paul says, chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And we'll return to this particular passage later on this morning, but what I want us to do is I want us to consider this morning four things that God is able to do for us in the days ahead. In our Wednesday night small groups, we've been going through a series on spiritual disciplines. And overall, I feel like it's been a really helpful study. But there's a danger in doing something like... A series on spiritual disciplines and the danger is that you can begin to turn the Christian life into a series of religious activities that you do in order to maintain a relationship with God and the result is that you end up cutting yourself off from the only foundation that can properly motivate and empower spiritual discipline in the first place which is the foundation of God's past work for you and his present work toward you And in you. And we can see that truth right here in this passage. Notice again, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So Paul is exhorting and urging these Ephesian Christians to walk worthy of their calling. And he's going to spend the next few chapters in the book of Ephesians talking to them about what it looks like to do that. And there's work and there's striving. And there's discipline involved in doing that. Make no mistake about it. But notice that chapter 4, verse 1 begins with an extremely important word. Therefore, therefore I urge you. Therefore I exhort you. In other words, Paul is urging them to walk worthy of their calling on the basis of what he's already said in chapters 1 through 3. And what did he say in chapters 1 through 3? Well, he reminded the Ephesians and us about what God has done in the past He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. He redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He lavished the riches of His grace upon us. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He gave us an inheritance. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. He saved us by his grace. He created us in Christ Jesus as his workmanship, that we would perform good works. He brought us near by the blood of Christ. He reconciled us to himself through the cross. He granted us access into his presence. And that's just chapters 1 through 2. Those are all things that God has done for believers in the past. Past completed. On top of that, Paul says that God is working right now to build us into a holy temple in the Lord. And that God is able to give us greater revelations of Himself and of His power in our lives. Paul's prayer in chapter 1. And he's able to strengthen us in the inner man. His prayer in chapter 3. He's able to make Christ dwell in our hearts by faith so that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he's able to fill us up to the fullness of God. And then the cherry on top of everything is there in verse 20 when Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You see, that's all Ephesians 1 through 3. And then on the basis of all of that, Paul says, therefore, therefore, in other words, because of what God has done in the past and because of what he's doing towards you and in you right now, and because of what he's able to do, therefore, you need to walk worthy of your calling. You see, the only thing that can properly motivate and empower spiritual discipline in the first place is the foundation of God's past work for you and His present work towards you and in you. And beloved, when you really see and believe what God is able to do for you, then there isn't any problem with spiritual discipline. The discipline will flow naturally out of a heart that's captivated by the glory and the wonder of God of what God has done for us and what He's able to do for us in Christ. When we really see and believe that, then all of the stuff that we ought to be doing will, by and large, take care of itself. And so to get us heading in that direction this morning, we're going to consider four things that God is able to do for us in the days ahead. And I want to make one more introductory statement before we get into those four things. Oftentimes, we're not helped by verses like the ones that we're going to look at this morning because when we hear that God is able to do something, we automatically interpret that in terms of our human ability. Now, here's what I mean. If my wife asked me to run to the store and get a gallon of milk, I would say, well, sure, I'm able to do that. But what I'm really saying is, sure, I'll try to the best of my ability to do that. Because the fact of the matter is that there are all kinds of things that could happen which could keep me from getting that gallon of milk. For example, I go out to the car and the car doesn't start. Or I run out of gas on the way there. Or I get a flat tire. Or the battery dies. Or I suffer a heart attack. Or someone crashes into me. Or I crash into someone else. Or maybe I finally get to the store and they're out of milk. You see, and there's all kinds of things we could add to that list. The point is that there are all kinds of external sort of constraints that I could run into that would keep me from achieving my purpose. Things outside of me that I can't know about ahead of time and things that I can't control which would keep me from getting that gallon of milk. But you see, here's the encouraging thing. There's no such thing as an external constraint with God. It doesn't exist. There's nothing outside of God that can stop him from accomplishing what he desires. Nothing catches him off guard. There's no such thing as an unforeseen circumstance that can hinder him. Nothing occurs that is outside of his control. Paul said that in Ephesians 1. He works all things after the counsel of his own will, you see. So when we say that God is able, we have to keep these things in mind. His ability, unlike our ability... His ability is infinite, omnipotent, and utterly unconstrained by anything outside of his own good pleasure. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9. And that's true at the beginning of the Christian life. And it's true all throughout the Christian life. When God determines to bless, nothing stops Him. Nothing can keep Him from showing mercy when He chooses. Alright, so with that background then, four things this morning that God is able to do. The The first thing, God is able to establish you. Romans 16. Let's turn there. Romans 16, verse 25. Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever, Amen. Now, in the context here, Paul is probably thinking specifically of being established against false teachers. Notice what he says in verse 17. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, literally, who cause occasions of stumbling. You see, there's the falling, the stumbling. Contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Similar to that, he says in Ephesians 4, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed, you see the language there, it's the opposite of being established, you're tossed. Tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So the Christian is in danger of being tossed and carried about by waves and wind. And specifically, again, I think Paul's thinking of the waves and the wind of false teachers and their false doctrine. They cause occasions of stumbling, and the opposite of that is being established. So he's praying that they would be established against that. But false teachers are not the only waves in the wind that Christians face. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always gusting and billowing, trying to sweep the believer's feet out from underneath him. And instead of being planted, instead of having strong roots that go down deep, giving stability and firmness, the weak believer is like a leaf on the ground and just the slightest little breeze picks that thing up and tosses it and blows it around. And some of you here know what that feels like. Perhaps you care too much about the opinions of others so that whenever someone expresses a correction of rebuke to you or they don't give you the attention that you feel like you deserve, your entire world is thrown into confusion. Or perhaps you're weak in faith in such a way that whenever someone brings up an objection to Christianity that you can't answer, you feel like the foundation just, is just ripped out from underneath you and you're wallowing around in unbelief. Or maybe your grasp of the gospel is too shallow and even the slightest fall into sin knocks all of the wind out of you, blasting your assurance to bits and leaving you beat down and miserable and dangerously open to the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I want to say this morning, if your walk with Christ feels more like a roller coaster ride than a walk beside still waters, then take heart because God is able to establish you. He's able to cause those roots to go down deep. He's able to firmly plant your feet upon the rock. He's able to make those roots go down so deep that no wind of doctrine, no opinion of man, no atheistic diatribe, and no minor stumbling into sin can upset your assurance or cause you to lose heart. And instead, you can be like the Apostle Paul there at the end of Romans 8 who's just exulting in being established in the Gospel. He's able to defy the world and defy the devil and even defy his own feelings, and he says, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You see, that's the talk of a man who's established in the gospel. He's firmly planted in the gospel, and he's able to say those kinds of things because he has roots that go down deep. And notice back here in Romans 16, that this establishing that Paul speaks of happens according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, he says there in verse 25. This establishing happens according to the gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. In other words, believers are more and more established, they're more and more firmly planted as they understand, as they hear and understand and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as you hear the word preached, it's as you dig into it on your own, it's as you hear the gospel and you understand it better and you apply it more to your life, it's then that you become more firmly established. You might say, well, I'm a Christian, though. I already understand the gospel. But you know what that's like? That's like saying that because I can add 2 plus 2, I understand math. Or because I can draw a stick figure, which is about all I can draw, that I understand art. I mean, it's ridiculous. The gospel is the most profound thing that God has ever done. It's exceedingly broad and high and deep. Every Christian understands something about the gospel. You have to to even be a Christian. But no Christian has exhausted the gospel, and no Christian understands the gospel as well as he or she could and should. If you think you understand the gospel, try to explain things to other people about the gospel. Can you explain propitiation to somebody? Can you explain justification to somebody? Can you explain repentance? Do you know what the word repent means? I mean, we just take these things for granted so much, don't we? It's like we hear about them, we kind of have some foggy ideas about what they mean, but if you were tried to explain it to somebody, you wouldn't be able to do it. And it's like my professor back in college said, if you can't explain it to somebody, you don't understand it yourself. All of those things are a part of the gospel. Propitiation, justification, regeneration, new creation in Christ. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, it's all part of the gospel. And it's as we go deeper and understand them better that we'll find the roots of our spiritual life following suit. He's able to establish believers and he'll do it through the Spirit-empowered understanding of his Spirit-inspired truth. And you see, our problem most of the time is that we're simply content with a superficial understanding of things. We're content with a surface-level understanding of truth. I mean, you can't plant an oak of righteousness in six inches of soil. You've got to dig down. You've got to dig in. You see, we'll read and pray for five minutes a day, and then we wonder why we're so shaky all the time. We have no assurance. We're superficial, surface-level. You've got to dig down deep. Now, let me just make a recommendation here. And I can do this because Charles isn't here. Next, next to daily disciplined prayer and Bible reading, the best thing that I know of to help establish Christians, whether you've been a Christian for six months or six years or 60 years, the best thing that I know of is Charles' book, Justification and Regeneration, in terms of helping believers get established, firmly planted, solidly, built up in truth if you don't have a copy of that book get a copy of it it's cheap it's five bucks it's like a meal at mcdonald's but you'll get something that will last you for the rest of your life and start reading it now methodically look up the verses think about what you're reading it could change not only the rest of your year but the rest of your entire life all right so god is able to establish you in terms of firmly planning you in the gospel Secondly, God is able to keep you from stumbling. Book of Jude. Right before the book of Revelation. Jude, verse 24. Now, to him who is able, there it is again. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Notice how many of these passages are actually doxologies and they kind of end off a section. They end. Paul is praising the Lord that he's able to do such and such, and then he's, he ends it with amen. Several of these are like that. So he says here, God is able to keep you from stumbling. And there's two different ways to understand this stumbling here, and both of them are biblical. And both of them, I think, are are true, and we need to get our minds around both. First of all, stumbling means that God is able to keep us from falling into specific acts of sin. So he's able to keep you from stumbling, meaning he's able to keep you from falling into specific acts of sin. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Taught us to pray that. And I wonder, you know, I thought this myself, I realized that is not something that I pray very often. You don't pray that way. And I got to thinking, why? I mean, he told us to pray that. He specifically said, pray that you would not be led into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. And yet we don't really pray that. And part of it, I think, is we feel like it's almost an unspiritual thing to pray. It's almost like we're taking the easy way out, you know. I mean, that's ridiculous, though, because he told us to pray that. He told us to pray, don't lead us into temptation. On a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. So apparently he expected his disciples to pray those things daily. Do not lead me into temptation on a daily basis. You're not taking the easy way out when God himself is the one who commands you to pray that. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And one of the ways that he does that is by inviting you to pray in that way. Don't lead me into temptation. Lord, I know my own weakness and my own foolishness. Keep me from the place of stumbling. Don't lead me into temptation today. That's the idea. But if we are led into temptation, Paul encourages us, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So either God will keep us from the place of temptation altogether, or he'll provide a way of escape for us out of every temptation that we face. And notice there that Paul makes this a matter of God's own faithfulness. He says God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted but will provide the way of escape out. It's because of his unchanging faithfulness that we can know for certain that we will never be tempted beyond what we're able and that every temptation will come with a way out. I mean, you never have the excuse. You never have the excuse that God didn't provide me a way out. You see, it's a matter of his own faithfulness. His own character is at stake in providing you with a path out of every temptation. It's not sin to be tempted We know that for certain because Christ Himself was tempted, but never sinned. But the question is, what do we do when the temptation comes? As one person said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. The way of escape is always, always, always there. He's able to keep you from stumbling in terms of specific acts of sin. So that's the first thing that Jude means here. He's able to keep you from stumbling. But not only that, God is able to keep you from stumbling in the sense of falling away. He's able to keep you from making shipwreck of the faith and perishing. Notice again what Jude says here. Verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. You see, He connects not stumbling with being brought all the way into His presence blameless with great joy getting into heaven getting there not only is he able to keep us from individual acts of sin he's able to keep us persevering until we enter into heaven persevering in this thing of the christian life and not in such a way that we just barely sneak in while no one is looking i mean i love this here what does he say he's able to make us stand not crawl or cower but stand Stand where? Off hiding in the shadows? No. Standing in the presence of His glory. How? Dirty and defiled by sin? No. Blameless. He's able to make you stand blameless. With tears of shame? No. With great joy. Able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. He who began a good work will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. And he must perform it because those whom he foreloved, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. It's the destiny of every child of God. It's secured by the death and resurrection of Christ himself. I mean, this is something we need to be reminded of because I don't know what your last six months or year may have been like. They could have been very discouraging for you, seemingly littered with unbelief and failure. And now you're staring the future in the face, and you're wondering, how in the world? I mean, if the, la- if the next six months is like the past six months, I'm not going to make it. How am I going to make it? And there's only one way, beloved, and that's by the Lord keeping you from stumbling. That's the only hope you have. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. You see, the Lord will settle for nothing less than complete victory. He will strengthen you in times of weakness. He'll sustain you in times of dryness. And He will pray for you, like He did with Peter, that your faith fail not. And that is the only hope that you have. But in the end, it's the only hope that you need because He's able to keep you from stumbling, able to get you there, able to persevere. All right, number three. So God is able to establish you. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Thirdly, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. 2 Corinthians 9. He's able to make all grace abound towards you. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now Paul, I think, is talking here specifically in the context again about God's grace abounding towards us in terms of provision and in terms of supplying our physical needs. He's able to provide for us in such a way physically that having all sufficiency in everything, we would then have an abundance so that we would then be able to give physical gifts, monetary, whatever, to other people. But again, the principle is much bigger than just God providing for our physical needs. He's able to make, Paul says, all grace abound towards you, not just in the area of material provision, but in every area of your spiritual life as well. And here's what we need to get, beloved. God does not have some small, finite amount of grace that He can give to someone at any one time. He's actually able to make all grace abound towards you at any one time. Think of what that means. All it takes is a little grace to melt the heart of the most rebellious sinner and make them a child of God. All it takes is a little grace to open the heart of Lydia. All it takes is a little grace to turn a denying Peter into a powerful preacher on the day of Pentecost. It only takes a little grace. I mean, God's not taxed at all when he does those things. He's not taxed when he takes Peter and turns him into a powerful preacher. It only takes a little bit of grace. And Paul is speaking here not of a little bit of grace coming towards you, but of all grace abounding towards you. Think of what all grace abounding towards you could do, what sins you could conquer, what sermons you could preach, what lost you could reach, what love you could pour out, what self you could deny. He's able to do that. He's able to make all grace abound towards you. And what is the basis? What's the foundation of such grace? Paul says this in Romans 5, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded. There it is, you see, able to make all grace abound towards you. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as you catch that, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. The basis of such grace is righteousness. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The basis of grace is righteousness, is justice. Grace reigns through righteousness. But the big question is whose righteousness does it reign through? It's not ours, because we don't have any. It doesn't reign through our righteousness. Context again of Romans 5. Grace reigns in the life of the Christian through the righteousness of Christ. It's His righteousness, His faithfulness, His goodness that secures for us the grace that God is able to make abound towards us. And that, beloved, is very encouraging because it means that there's nothing, my unrighteousness, my unrighteousness can't stand in the way of God's desire to make His grace abound towards me because it's not on the basis of me. It's on the basis of Christ. It's His righteousness that grace abounds through. God is not a miser when it comes to His grace. Ephesians 1, He says He's made the riches of His grace abundant towards us through Jesus. And His grace is the only hope that we have for growing in Christlikeness and gospel usefulness. 2 Peter 3, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that should be the desire of every Christian, to grow in grace. We wonder how the early church could preach like they did, sacrifice like they did, pray like they did, suffer like they did, love like they did. And Acts 4 gives us the answer, Acts 4.33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. You see that? That's how the early church did it, beloved. It's not because they were so good and holy. It's because of God's grace. Abundant grace was upon them all. And He's able to do that for us as well. He's able to make His grace abound towards us. Make it a daily, several times a day kind of prayer. More grace, Lord. More grace. More grace. At home, at work, whatever the situation, more grace. It's a prayer that He delights to answer. All right, lastly then, the coup de grace, Ephesians 3. Back to Ephesians 3, verse 20. So number four, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I tried to study a little physics earlier this year, just on my own. And one thing that I realized pretty quickly when you're studying something like physics is that it's very easy to read over a piece of information without really getting your mind around what you just read. For example, take something as basic and simple basic and simple, as the speed of light. If I say to you that light travels at 671 million miles per hour, that doesn't mean a thing to you. You can't even begin to conceptualize or visualize that or frame it in your mind. It's it's a meaningless statement. I mean, we think in terms of 60, 70 miles per hour. Light travels at 671 million miles per hour. You can't visualize that. So what if I say instead, okay, that's a little bit much. So how about putting it this way? Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And you think, that doesn't help either. (laughs) You can't visualize that either. 186,000 miles per second. Again, it's just like a meaningless statement. So instead, what if I gave you an illustration and I said if you were standing on the equator and you shot a beam of light around the equator, that beam of light would travel around the earth seven and a half times in one second. Now, that's still pretty impossible to grasp, but you see, at least by giving an illustration, you at least can begin to get a feel for the whole thing. You can kind of begin to start to visualize that idea. And you see, the danger with a verse like this in Ephesians 3, the danger is that we simply read over it in the same way that we read about the speed of light. And we read it, and it's, it's some of the most incredible statements here in all of, all of the Bible. And we just kind of read over it, and we don't even stop to try to think about it because it's so amazing and so incredible that it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. So what I want us to do here is to try to slow down a little bit and really consider what Paul is saying. And I want to do that by using an illustration. Just like with the speed of light, I think it's about the only way you can try to get at this thing. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. All right, now, imagine this. Imagine if you made a wish list of the top 100 blessings that you would like to receive from God. The top 100 answers to prayer. No matter how seemingly impossible those things might be. So just think about that for a second. What would be on your list? I mean, you probably can't think of a hundred things right offhand, but you can think of probably quite a few. A list of the top 100 things that you would like to receive as blessings from the Lord. Things that you would desire for yourself, things that you would desire for other people. What would be on that list? Maybe that all of your family members would be converted and saved. Maybe that you would become a Spurgeon in your preaching, or a Mueller in your praying, or that you would have a heart of sacrificial service, that Bob Jennings would be completely healed of his cancer, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit up there on the Truman campus. I mean, whatever your list would look like, imagine these, this list of a hundred impossible blessings. All right, so picture that before you. Now, how incredible would it be If God even did one-fourth of the things on your list, 25 things on that list, how incredible would that be? I mean, that itself would be beyond comprehension. 25 of those impossible things. Now, what if he did half of those things? 50. What if he did three-fourths of those things? Now we're hitting 75 out of 100. 100. But you see, even that doesn't go far enough, does it? Because Paul says that God is able to do all that we ask or think. All 100 things on the list. That's what Paul's saying. And yet, here's the incredible thing, and yet even that, even all 100 things on the list, falls far short of what Paul actually says. Because what does Paul say? He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Now, what does he mean? Well, again, picture it like this. Imagine you have this list of 100 things, and you give that list to the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, this one here, you can really add a little bit more to that one. And this one here, it's really not as good as it could be. And so instead of answering our requests as we wrote them, he improves upon them, and he adds to them, and then he answers all 100 of them. You see, that's what Paul is talking about here. I mean, if that doesn't render you speechless, I don't know what will. Is it any wonder that Paul ends this section by saying, to him be the glory in the church And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You might say, yeah, but surely that promise isn't for every Christian. But what does Paul go on to say? He says, God is able to do these things, verse 20, according to the power that works within us. Us who? Just the early apostles? Early disciples? No, all Christians. All Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of them. Ephesians 1, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, this promise applies to all Christians, from the least to the greatest of them. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. All right, at this point, you might be wondering about something. You might be thinking in your mind, and this is usually one of the first objections that comes up when we hear about some of this kind of stuff. You might think, yeah, God is able to do these things, but is He willing to do them? He's able to do them, but is He willing to do them? Because if God is able, but He's not willing, then everything that we've said here this morning is absolutely worthless. It'd be like a man some wealthy old miser who had enough riches to bless a vast multitude of people, but he's unwilling to let any of it go. Is that what God is like? Is He able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, but not willing to do it? That's the question. And I want to answer that here just with some a few quotes from, from the Bible itself. To let the Word of God itself answer that objection in your mind. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God, truly I say to you. Whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. You do not have, because you do not ask. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him." William Carey was a missionary, sometimes called the father of modern missions. And he had a motto, and his motto was, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And in light of what we heard this morning, perhaps we could all strive to make that motto a reality in our own lives. And we can, beloved, because God is able. He is able. Paul says in Philippians 3, we'll close with this, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. You see, I don't care what what happened six months ago. It doesn't matter. Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting the bad things that, that lie behind, and forgetting the good things too. See, because you can't rely on the good things of yesterday. You need fresh supplies of grace for this day. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray. Father, we marvel at how unbelieving we can be in light of such glorious truth. And Lord, I'd be the first one to admit that I don't understand a lot of these verses. I don't don't really believe them. I don't understand them. But, Father, I pray that you teach us. I pray that you teach us how to pray and teach us how to believe you. And, Lord, just help us to, to be more expectant of you. It's so easy to go throughout the day and just to not even expect God to do anything. And, Lord, it's wrong. It's a wrong attitude, it's a wrong mindset. Help us, Lord, forgive us for our unbelief and just pray, Father, that You would fill us afresh in these days with Your Spirit and help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, keeping in mind what You've done for us in the past, what You're doing right now, and what You're able to do for us in Christ, abounding in riches to all who call upon Him. Help us, Lord, help us the rest of this time to fellowship with one another in spirit and in truth. Help us to encourage one another For the, as the day draws near. Pray for the saints traveling back again today and tomorrow. Just ask for safety and help and a blessed time in the car. Thank You for this group here this morning. Lord, meet with us now in Christ's name. Amen.